Please turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We're actually backing up just a bit from where we were a couple of weeks ago to look at another a very, very arresting and very important passage in uh, the life of Peter, the apostle. So Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, that I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, until you deny three times that you know me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you spoke these words, you inspired these words, you preserved these words, and you've done that for us. So there is something here for us, and we ask you that by your Spirit, you would deliver it. In your word, through your word, speak to your people what it is we need to hear. We pray and ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we uh, are back taking a look at Peter. We've been following Peter through the Gospels. Uh, We are watching things happen in Peter's life. The reason that we're doing this, the backstory to this, is that uh, some months ago now, in making our way through Romans, I spent eight weeks uh, preaching two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And that you not be conformed any longer to this world, but that you be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove, that you may put on display, that you may demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Change. Transformation. Metamorphosis. Ugly caterpillars becoming glorious butterflies. And following that series of sermons, as a result of some conversations actually with my son-in-law, I made the decision that it might be helpful for us to take a look at someone who actually changed. And that someone, of course, is Peter. And so we're watching Peter. We're watching him in his relationship to Jesus. We're watching him and his view of Jesus. 
and watching how it is that Jesus, I'm convinced, gets bigger and bigger and bigger in Peter's field of vision. By the end of the story, meaning by the time you get to 2 Peter, the second of Peter's two letters, a letter written probably not very long before he died, you see in that letter what matters most to Peter. It's the way it is, isn't it? You're going to write a last will and testament, not a formal legal document, but you're going to convey in a final communication the things that matter the most to you. You're going to communicate what's in your heart, what's in your field of vision, and that's what Peter does. And what's striking about his letter, particularly as you think about where we were a couple of weeks ago, in looking at Peter's failure, we got any failures in here? Okay, you don't have to raise your hands. I'm the only one who has to raise his hand. We got any failures in here? Somebody back in the sound room, he's hiding. He's, he's raising his hand. He's saying, yeah, I'm in that game. Peter, the failure is not, in his last letter, preoccupied with his failure. If you read his second letter, it is not filled with regrets. He doesn't mention his threefold denial of Jesus. He doesn't say, look, I screwed up royally. Don't do what I did. There is no direct or even indirect, as nearly as I can tell, reference to his threefold denial, to that bottom, that nadir that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. What you see as you read his last letter is Jesus. You see his vision filled, and not with himself, which as we've seen, has been Peter's problem. Anybody else got that problem? That was his problem. But his last letter is not filled with himself, it's filled with Jesus. His divine power has granted us everything necessary for life and godliness. Think of that coming from Peter. He has called us to his own glory and excellence. He has granted us his own very great and precious promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Imagine that. And toward the end of chapter 1, his heart is filled. You can read this. It's in the last paragraph of, of the first chapter of Second Peter. His heart is filled with recollections of the experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he uses the word glory frequently in that letter. He remembers the voice of the Father, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He refers to the majestic glory. He mentions being an eyewitness of majesty. Those are synonyms for glory. And the final verse of the letter is, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Which is a Greek word which means, so be it. So be it. So here's the principle, folks. Here's what we see happening in the life of Peter. Change comes as Jesus gets bigger. 
I've said it several times through this series. I will say it again. It's not about techniques. It's not about being clever. It's not about having a good system. Those things may have their place. It's not about having the right therapist. I don't disparage that. I need a therapist. I am fortunate to be married to one. (laughs) It's not about disparaging those things. It is recognizing that change comes in Peter's life as Jesus gets bigger. It's really the reverse of what you read in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses that do not smell, hands that do not feel, feet that do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them. Those who make them become like them. Here's the point. You become what fills your vision. You become what fills your vision. You become what occupies your thoughts, your hearts, your minds, your souls. To use the most powerful and poignant language, we are all worshipers and we become what we worship. And what happens for Peter over time, pain-filled, hard, excruciating time, but what happens for Peter over time is that Jesus more and more fills his vision, occupies his heart, his mind, and his soul, and his life is changed, and he becomes more and more alive. That's the reality. And here in this passage, we get another view of Jesus, another glimpse into the ways of Jesus in his ministry to Peter, and we get another piece of datum explaining why Jesus would grow so much larger in Peter's field of vision. It's a frightening passage. It's a humbling passage. And I hope that what we will see here is that Peter, that you and I, that we all, far more than we realize or think, far more than we want to acknowledge, are utterly dependent upon the ministry of Jesus. Utterly dependent upon the ministry of Jesus. And that is because you and I, as did Jesus, have an utterly implacable enemy. An utterly implacable enemy. Do you know what implacable means? I looked it up in my Funkin' Wagnalls. It means incapable of being appeased. Incapable of being appeased. 
It's the first thing that I want us to see here. And it's the thing that's really going to dominate the rest of our time together. Keeping in mind that what's happening for Peter as he has these interactions with Jesus is that over time, hard, pain-filled time, his vision of Jesus is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What I want us to see here, especially this morning, is the reality, the presence, the nastiness of an implacable enemy. Listen to what Jesus says, beginning again at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I'll buy that. That sounds wonderful. In fact, it sounds like an answer to the conversation that has just preceded those verses where the disciples are disputing about who's going to be the greatest among them. See, they're all about greatness. right? They're all about sitting on thrones. They're all about the places of honor. And you know, of course, that Jesus' approach to ministry is completely counter to that. He says so in the previous verses. Who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Yes, it's the one who reclines at table. The one who is served is the one who is greater. That's the way the world works. You can measure a person's success in the world. You can measure a person's stature in the world by the number of servants that person has. Do you have an attorney? Do you have an accountant? Do you have a financial planner? Do you have a personal physician? You've got servants. You've got standing. But Jesus' approach is completely counter that, isn't it? Without comment, he simply turns the direction of greatness not to the one who is served, but to the one who serves, namely himself. I am among you as the one who serves. But then come these verses in which Jesus is talking about kingdoms again. And he's talking about sitting at table with him. And he's talking about thrones and and sitting in judgment with respect to the 12 tribes of Israel. That all sounds wonderful. And then having said that, he addresses this sobering, frightening, this sort of gut-check reality. Verse 31, Simon, 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 Simon. I find it interesting that Jesus uses the name Simon rather than the name Peter. And you remember what the name Simon means? Do you remember the verb that it comes from? To hear? To hear with interest? To hear with the intention to obey? It is the verb, the Hebrew verb, from which the Jews get the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, hear, 
The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Simon, Simon. It's as if Jesus is saying, Simon, listen, listen, listen. I'm about to tell you something extremely important. And in the culture, if you said something twice, in the culture of the day, it underscored its importance, right? Jesus would say, when he wanted to say something, everything he said was important. But when he wanted to say something important, important, he said, truly, truly. And he's saying here, Simon, Simon, listen to this. Satan demanded to have you. Satan demanded to have you. Folks, let's just remember, I've, I've said this several times, but boy, it just, comes, it just comes to sort of razor-sharp focus right here. Let's just remember that there is a great deal more to reality than meets the eye. There is an unseen dimension to the world in which we live. Peter's learning this lesson. Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, your enemy, Satan, has demanded you. Peter got it. Because Peter is the one who in his first letter writes, your enemy, writing to those who are receiving this letter, your enemy, the devil, prowls around seeking whom he may devour. Peter had an implacable enemy, Satan. The word Satan simply means adversary, but throughout Scripture he is described as the serpent, he is described as the liar, he is described as the deceiver, he is described as the destroyer, he is described as the enemy of God. And here is the enemy of Peter. And here's a critical thing. When Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. You may have this little notation in the margins of your Bibles. The personal pronoun is not the second person singular pronoun. It is plural. Simon, Simon, Satan demands to have all of you. He wants all of you. And why does he want all of you? He wants all of you. He wants the 12 because the 12 are the church. They stand for the church. They represent the church. Read the Revelation. You'll see references to 12, 12 gates, 12 pillars, all kinds of 12s. What are the 12s? The 12s are the Old Testament tribes on the one hand and the apostles representing the church on the other hand. They represent the church. What does Satan want? Satan wants the church. He is the adversary of the church. He is a liar to the church. He is the deceiver of the church. He is the destroyer of the church. He is the enemy of the church. Are you with me so far? This isn't just Peter's problem. This isn't just the twelve's problem. This is your problem. You have an implacable enemy. And what does he want to do? He wants to sift. Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might 
sift you like wheat. Now, do you know what sifting is? You must know what sifting is. Sifting is used as a metaphor in the scriptures. It's used actually by Jesus. There is a sifting that will take place, a sifting at the end of history, a sifting in which the wheat will be separated from the chaff. Folks, this is really tough stuff to preach. But it is a component of the whole counsel of God. And if you've been with us on Sunday nights, going all the way back to the very first Sunday night as we were looking at Hebrews, I made the point, I think it was the first week, maybe the second week, I made the point that I am under obligation to preach the whole counsel of God. I simply do not have the freedom to avoid the things that you or anybody else might find uncomfortable. Because at the end of the day, at the end of history, I will be held accountable for how I have handled this gospel that has been entrusted to me. And my beloved people, I see faces I have not seen before. So I don't know entirely to whom I'm speaking. But with every ounce of compassion and conviction that I can muster, I want to say to you, at the end of history, there will be a sifting. There will be a separating of the wheat from the chaff. That which is to be preserved, that which is to be kept, that which which will last under the eternal day, and the chaff which is without worth and without value and which will be consumed in fire. That's what they did with chaff. That's why the metaphor is so significant. It was burned and consumed. The Bible uses the language of sifting to direct our attention to that great day, a day that we've referred to, a glorious day which for you as Christians and for me as a Christian will be a phenomenal day when we will be received into heaven, will be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy in body and soul, in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit unto all eternity. Boy, if your heart doesn't warm to listening to that kind of language, I'm not sure you've got a heart. But what stands over against that, that is the wheat being sifted out and separated from the chaff. What stands over against that beautiful description is the reality of the judgment of Christ upon any and everything that has resisted him. That's what sifting is. It's separating. And here, here is Jesus using that sort of language. That sort of language with respect to Satan. And what is he saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, you have an enemy an enemy who is relentless 
who is implacable, who cannot be appeased. And what he wants for you and for his old church is its entire destruction. He wants to sift and separate and destroy, not preserve. He is utterly and entirely opposed to you. And he is fierce. And he is relentless. This last week, I didn't have, I didn't have the stuff with me that I really needed to have. I didn't have my books. I went right from Chattanooga to Michigan. So I found myself reading some other things. And I picked up a copy, an old copy of National Review. Good reading, by the way. And there was a piece in this particular issue of National Review that dealt with the character Che Guevara. Remember Che Guevara, the righteous revolutionary. There's one little paragraph in which the guy who wrote the article asks a student that he sees on the street who has one of those T-shirts on it that says Che, you know, with the kind of the, the, the face of Che Guevara. He says, do you know who Che Guevara was? He's a rock star, isn't he? This little piece was something of an expose on Che Guevara. And when Che was still in Cuba, still doing what he did in Cuba, he had had a bunch of people in prison, one of whom was a 15-year-old boy, suspected of opposing his agenda. And the mother appealed to Che for her son, and she was granted access to Che. And the mother asked that her 15-year-old boy be spared And Chase said to the mother, what day is he to be executed? And one of his lieutenants said, on Friday. He said, what is today? It is Tuesday. Bring him here and execute him now so that his mother does not have to wait until Friday. Folks, every once in a while, the restraining influence, the restraining influence of a good God is itself restrained. And when that restraint is restrained, the reality of the presence of evil in this world breaks through. It happens, as it happened in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod, in a rage, had all of those little boys executed, somewhere between 15 and 50 of them, in and around Bethlehem. He asked, what does Che Guevara have to do with Satan, with the great enemy of the church? What does Herod have to do with the great enemy of the church? 
What do other atrocities that we could enumerate, that we could enlarge upon? What do political manipulations and machinations and the erecting of kingdoms, what does that have to do with Satan? Well, let me remind you again that there is an interwovenness to things. And let me tell you, you will never understand the Bible. You will never understand history You will never understand your own Christian experience if you don't understand that there is an interwovenness to this world in which we live. That behind earthly principalities and powers, behind human political motives and aspirations and agendas, There are other forces at work. Jesus acknowledged that when he was arrested. I don't know if you caught this a couple of weeks ago when we read this passage. But when Jesus was arrested, and when all of those folks came out to get him, he said to the crowd, gathered around him, there to arrest him, there to try him, there to execute him, he said to them, this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is not just about Pontius Pilate. This is not just about Herod. This is not just about Sadducees and Pharisees and Roman lieutenants. This is your hour and the power of darkness. There is an interwovenness to things, folks. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 6. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to admonish anybody who would read that letter to armor themselves to armor themselves with the only armor that can withstand these assaults. And that is Jesus Christ, the armor. I'll say it again. There is a power, there is a force, there is an adversary who is inclined to, who maneuvers to, who machinates to oppose and destroy everything that is God's, that belongs to God. And that includes you and me. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now, here's the point at which you can take great comfort Here's the point at which you can take great comfort. Listen to what Jesus says next to Peter. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. So that when you are converted, is actually what the word means, when you are converted, which is to say, 
This is not a commentary on whether or not Peter was a Christian at this point. But it is to say, Peter, when you come to your senses, when you repent, when you turn from your arrogance, right? I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die with you. What utter nonsense. When you repent of your foolishness and are restored by returning to me, then turn and strengthen your brothers. That's what will happen as a result. That's what we will look at next week. Peter's restoration. But here is this thing without which Peter and you are doomed and utterly exposed. And that is the high priestly intercession of Jesus Christ who prayed for Peter, who prayed for the twelve, and who prays for you right now. We've got laundry lists, right? We've got laundry lists. We've got prayer lists that are just, I mean, off the charts, right? Everything from a parking place to being healed of a terminal disease to seeing my mother come to faith in Christ. I think Jesus has a lot of things on his prayer list. But I also think that we can look at the earthly ministry of Jesus and see how Jesus ministers to his disciples and we can come to an understanding based upon what we see in the earthly ministry of Jesus of what his heavenly ministry is like. And I'm going to suggest to you that the thing that is at the top of Jesus' prayer list is his prayer that you be preserved from Satan's attempts to destroy you. And as we look at Peter's life, understanding that those prayers were answered, that Peter, yes, did stumble. He did, yes, fall. But he did then, yes, repent and return and come back to Jesus. And Jesus restored him. The prayer was answered, folks, Your comfort in any given moment of any particular day is this comfort that Jesus, when he prays, gets what he asks for. Because the Father loves the Son. And the Father loves those whom the Son loves. You know as well as I do, you pray for what you care about. And Jesus prays for you because he cares about you and loves you and the Father loves what the Son loves and the Father loves to do for the Son what the Son wants for the Father to do. And the Son wants you to be kept and preserved. And he is praying for that just as he did for Peter and the twelve. I find it really striking. I find it really striking that as you read the first few verses of Peter's first letter, 
all of the emphasis, go do it, go read them. All of the emphasis is upon God. It's all upon what God does. God has given us new birth. God has given us a salvation. And Peter uses the word kept, being kept for you. Which is Peter's way of saying that he is being kept for that salvation. That he might enter in to the full enjoyment of it. I did another thing this last week. I'm almost embarrassed, I guess, to admit it. I downloaded over two hours worth of Bob Dylan. (laughs) But I will suggest to you, I will suggest to you that you just download one song And then because you can't really understand what he's singing, you call up the lyrics through some lyrics maniac website that you can get on your computer. And you call up the song, When He Returns. And this is how it ends. Of every earthly plan that be known to man, He is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. Folks, there are enemies arrayed against the church seeking to destroy the church. They will inflict damage. They will do harm but they will not succeed because there is a king seated upon the throne and when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter encourages us to be mindful. Paul encourages us to be mindful that we have an enemy seeking our destruction, but there is one more powerful who is praying for, working for, and will be successful in your preservation. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,